Welcome to the You on the Camino de Santiago podcast, season two, helping pilgrims get ready for their first pilgrimage walk on the Camino. With your host, Camino guide and longtime pilgrim, Nancy Reynolds of the Camino Experience. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. This is Nancy, here with part two of the conversation with Andrea and Jason as they prepare for their pilgrimage on the Camino Frances in May 2023. If you haven't yet listened to part one, which was episode eight, please do. Andrea is from Brazil, and Jason is from Missouri, and they will be starting their pilgrimage on the two-year anniversary of their first date. This is a love story you won't want to miss. I want you to get to know these two before we get into their many questions. And here's what's perfect about Andrea and Jason's questions. They have been following along with this podcast since the beginning of season one, and their questions are, I suspect, exactly the questions you have by now, if you've been listening along. This episode is a bit on the long side, because I didn't want to cut out any of our conversation. We are going to be talking about so many topics, things like bed bugs, how to get to the train station in Madrid, how to cope with the busy section of the Frances route from Saria to Santiago, and a bunch more packing tips. So, grab your notebook and a pen, pour yourself a beverage, and plop into your favorite chair, because we are about to cover a lot of ground. Before we rejoin Andrea and Jason, I want to mention a couple of things. First, you may remember me mentioning that I lead groups on the Camino Frances. Registration is closed for my May 2023 group and open for the group starting on September 9th. Now, how do you know if this is the way for you to start your Camino? This group is for you if you want to walk the Camino Frances. You would like to walk in September and take advantage of some of the best weather of the year, and you have not yet committed to your exact dates to walk. This group is for you if you are leaning towards walking the Camino solo, on your own, or with one or two other people, yet you would love to meet and connect with a small group of pilgrims before you go, and not have to walk out of Saint-Jean-Pied-du-Port alone. And this group is for you if you would like to take what you are learning in this podcast to the next level, meaning, let's get personal. Let's get ready together and discover what would make this the life-changing experience you are looking for. If that's you, let's schedule a 15-minute Zoom or phone call to talk about your Camino dreams. Simply go to the show notes for this episode and follow the link called Let's Talk. And the other thing. I recently started a weekly email list where I send out additional Camino tips and information. You can join that list by following the link in the show notes. And when you do, I'll send you a copy of my top 10 Camino tips that don't usually show up in the top 10 lists. Now, let's get back to Andrea and Jason, picking up right where we left off in episode 8. All right, so let's have some questions. I'm going to jump in because it's, Andrea was talking about us over, not over planning, but, you know, immersing ourselves. And she, as she said, you know, sometimes too much information can get her to be, you know, in a state of FOMO, you know, I'm going to miss this, or I'm going to miss that. I like to, I'm in the entertainment business and I'm a performer and a director. So I like to know everything. Mm -hmm. Right. I know as much as I, I can so that I can forget everything. So I am prepared and I can walk on the Camino and go, oh, if I if we divert our plan without without over planning, 
right? We're not going to have a spreadsheet, even though Andrea is a corporate America and she, she, you know, the corporate world, she, she started a spreadsheet and we're like, you know what, let's just, let's just walk. So we, we amputated that aspect of it, but no, okay, if this happens, if we get a blister, we can Vaseline, we can use whatever X, X, Y, and Z so that if it happens, we can get back on track, so to speak. Now, my question is, it's early in our, on our journey, we're flying into Madrid and we're going to get from the airport to the train in order to take the train to Pamplona. Yeah. So what is the best way to get from the airport in Madrid to the train in Madrid to go to Pamplona? Is it a tram, which we've heard there's a tram that can get us there or to take a taxi? Because when we land, we have a window of opportunity, but it's not huge. And if there's any sort of delay, we're not going to pack, we're not going to, sorry, um, check our luggage. We're going to just carry on our backpack. What would you suggest is the, I guess, most efficient way to get there? Okay. That's a great question. And it's one of the most asked questions. And I always love it when on the Facebook groups, uh, my, my friend, on, uh, Andrea, another Andrea, uh, pipes in because she lives, she's an American living in Madrid. She's like, Madrid local here. Here's what you do. So, uh, and I've done this a bunch of times too. So, my favorite way is the airport express bus. And it is a yellow bus that is, that goes through all the terminals. You walk out the door and look left and right until you find the yellow bus, or you just ask at the information desk. I guess that what, that's what it's called, right? The information desk where's the bus to the train station? So it goes to the Atocha train station. The train to Pamplona leaves from the Atocha station and the airport express bus goes directly to the Atocha train station. It costs five euros per person. And you can, if you have euros, you can pay in cash or you can just tap your credit or debit card on their little machine to pay. Easy. And it's one of those transport buses where there aren't a lot of seats. There's more standing room. And there's a place for all the luggage. So it does go on the highway. So I always like to try to get a seat because that seems a little weird to be standing on the highway. But then it takes you to Atocha. And the Atocha train station is massive. It's got a metro. It's got short distance, long distance trains, everything. So when you get off, you just need to have know that you have enough time to find your way to the part of the station that has the train to Pamplona. Depending on traffic, it can take anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes. But in my experience, it's usually on the shorter side because they do have bus designated. I think they have designated bus line uh, lanes once you get into the center of the city. And I like that because then you're seeing the city go by and you're like, ooh, ooh, look at that. I want to see that. Mm -hmm. Taxi will do the same thing for you. Taxis from the airport into the city center have a flat rate. And last time I did it, it was 30 euros. It might be 35 euros. And it's flat rate. You don't, you don't negotiate it. It's just, I'm going to the Atocha station and they take you right there. And then again, you can see stuff. There also is a train system called Thercanias. It starts with a C. And your long distance train ticket to Pamplona comes with one free journey on the Thercanias line. Now, that's a little bit of a more of a dance because I'm pretty certain that you have to get to Terminal 4. Yeah. So unless you That's came right. in on, I think American Airlines comes in on Terminal 4, but otherwise you've got to get on the shuttle. That's a green shuttle to take you to Terminal 4 to get to the Metro or train lines. I love the bus. Five euros, job's done. Perfect. Yeah. I yeah, have two, fo two follow-up questions on that. Mm -hmm. um, do you suggest booking the ticket for the train from Madrid to Pamplona in advance, or is that something that we buy when we get to the Atocha station? I have always bought my tickets in advance for the sole reason that the price goes up the closer you get to departure. And then that way I know it's locked in. Sometimes trains do sell out and I don't know how busy it'll be at that time on that line. So maybe it won't sell out, but I, I like to pay less, so I buy the ticket. Now, the downside of that is if your flight is delayed and you miss your train ticket, you may have to buy a whole new ticket unless you, I think also though Renfi, the train company has an option for changeable and refundable. So you could pay more 
out of the gate and get a ticket you can change. If you have travel insurance, which I recommend, that may also be covered by a travel insurance policy if you have to buy another train ticket. Okay. So that's a question to ask. And speaking of travel insurance, one of my favorite tips that I got from a pilgrim in one of my groups was when you're shopping for travel insurance, come up with a couple of questions for them and call to see how responsive their customer service department is and see if they're friendly, if they're kind, if they're informative, if they know their stuff, because that'll give you an indicator of what it'll be like to deal with them if you have a claim. That's a great, yeah, suggestion. Isn't that a great tip? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I want to pick up on the other thing Jason mentioned was that we are not going to check our backpacks. And because we're not going to check the backpacks, we can't bring our tracking poles with us. Do you have any tips for getting a tracking pole when we get to Sanjan? Absolutely. Super easy. They know you're coming and they know you didn't bring your poles. (laughs) Yeah, they're ready for you. There's actually a shop that's so Sejan. I I have this little love affair going with Sejan. The center little street in Sejan is this beautiful cobblestone street that goes steeply up the hill. And there's these picturesque Basque themed buildings. That's absolutely the wrong way to say it, but you'll you'll see what I mean when you get there. It's just beautiful. And at the top of the hill on the left-hand side is the pilgrim's office where you'll go to get your credential or your, if you have one that you've ordered, you'll get your first stamp and you'll get registered. So you get counted in the statistics of who started there. And across the street from that is a boutique, couple, couple doors down, couple doors back down the hill. It's a pilgrim boutique. And there's a sign out front that says that they sell trekking poles something like one for 11 euros, two for 22 euros. And they, I know they're, those are the most basic. They probably weigh a ton, but inside they also have other higher quality trekking poles and they'll be pretty affordable. We had heard at some point, I don't know if, I don't know if it was on your podcast or something else that at the end in, uh, in Santiago, since we won't be able to take our trekking poles, that we might be able to donate them somewhere. Is that, do you know if that's a reality? And if so, where did they go? Absolutely true. And I have heard that people leave their trekking poles at the pilgrim's office in Santiago where they get their Compostela. My favorite place would be a place called Terra Nova Pilgrim House. And I'll put that in the notes for this episode so everyone can get that. Terra Nova Pilgrim House is run by an American couple who had a vision and a dream and a passion. And they created a welcome center and a safe place for pilgrims to come at the end of their journeys to have a conversation if they need to talk to somebody, if they need just to be witnessed, if they need to cry in the corner. And there, you know, there's a couple of different rooms. There's a really lovely lounge in the back where you can have some quiet time. They've got books. They've got motivational things on the walls. This is more than you asked for, but they'll store your backpack for you. They will print your boarding pass for you. They've got a place for laundry. They've got a little kitchen that pilgrims can use. And I'm pretty sure it's still all on donation. And they're open five days a week. They're closed on Sunday and Wednesday, and they will take your trekking poles. That's great. I mean, we don't want to, we don't want to waste them, but obviously... I mean, I guess we could put them in our backpack and then check it on our way back. But uh, you could, if you love them, if you fall in love with your trekking poles. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm going to name them. I'm going to name them. I got to figure out what I'm going to name my poles. (laughs) (laughs) People name their cars or their motorcycles. Why not? Why not? Trekking poles. (laughs) A couple of practical, you know, packing, we have to be packing light, of course. So we don't want to bring things that we don't need. Obviously, we need merino wool socks and and things like that. At the time of year that we'll be traveling, you know, mid to late May to mid-June, it seems like it'll be very pleasant and maybe not as rainy as, uh, you know, other months earlier and uh, much later in the fall. Would we need something like sleeping bags we hear is like, oh, bring sleeping bags or bring a sleeping bag liner. Is that something that we we would need because it gets so chilly in the spring evenings and it's not, and albergues maybe don't have 
you know, the greatest blankets or sheets or anything like that? What is your tip on sleeping bags? It's a really good question. And the first thing we have to do is talk about the weather and what the weather will be like. And we have no idea. That's the short answer. We have no idea. When I was there last spring, May and June, in mid mid May, I think it was, we had a heat wave and it, and temperatures were no kidding, 90, 90 to 95 degrees. Wow. No kidding. And then it went back down to sort of normal for that time, which would have been mid seventies, I think. And then in early June, there was another darn heat wave and temperatures again, 90, 95. And we were dying. I mean, I was, I, I don't do heat very well. <laughs> so, and in previous years I've been there, it's been cold. Uh, one example is if you're staying in the albergue in Roncesvalles, which is just over the Pyrenees, they don't have blankets. So if you're going to stay in that little hamlet, little speck of a place, and you don't want to carry a sleeping bag, you may want to get a private room in that place. So what do you really need? So there are a couple of ways that I look at that question. One is, what's your typical sleeping style? Do you usually sleep cold or do you usually sleep warm? And let me preface that by saying, if you're staying in the albergues, you need something. You need either a sleep sack or a sleeping bag because some of them will give you disposable sheets and some of them will charge you for those disposable seats. And if you use the disposable sheets, they're not very comfortable. They're, they're this very weird, you know, if you have a little dry spot on your hand, they stick to your, you know, they stick to dry skin and they follow you around. It's this really awful fabric, a papery fabric. And the other thing is I'm thinking 30, 60, 100 sets of disposable sheets every night is really adding to the, to the lack of health of the planet. Very wasteful. It's very wasteful. Thank you for summing that up. I was dancing around <laughs> that a little bit. But so you want something, whether it's a sleep sack or a sleeping bag. And then I would just make the decision based on how warm or how cold you sleep. Most albergues will have blankets available couple of things to know about the blankets. Unless they're charging you a rental fee, they're not washing them every time they're used, which is again, why you have to have something between you and it. Okay. And this is standard in the hospitality business. Hotel blankets aren't washed every day. They're not. We wish they were, but they're not. What I would bring, I would not ever go to the Camino without even staying in private rooms is I bring along a pillowcase so that I can cover whatever pillow is there. And I bring a king size one because the pillows in Spain are different. They're more like what we would call a bolster. They're as wide as the bed. And so one of a US king size pillowcase will cover one of their pillows. Huh, that's very interesting. I'm glad I asked. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I haven't done the episode yet on sleeping bags. So maybe I don't have to now since I just did this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's so much more that you will dive into. Yeah, yeah. I know you've talked about bed bugs, you know, mm-hmm. on and off again. And is that something that is a, it's a really big concern? Is that, is there any way to avoid it? I mean, if we stay in, cause we're not going to stay in bunk bed albergues all the time. We'll probably do more private rooms and then treat ourselves occasionally and maybe in Leon to a hotel or something like yeah. that. But in general, the, the albergues, uh, is that something that should be a concern and is there a way, any way to avoid it? Hmm. It's a really good question. And I'll, I'll share with you a few things I've learned from working in a hostel. So I didn't work in a hostel on the Camino, but I were, I've worked in two hostels in California and in hostels in California, a responsible owner is going to be doing checks regularly, looking in the, the seams, the creases between the, the bed posts and in all the furniture and everywhere in the room. Is that done on on the Camino every day, every week? Probably not, but we can do our part by checking for them. So a couple of things I picked up working in a hostel. One is bed bugs don't like everybody. So even if they're there, statistically, they're probably going after only about one in 10 people. If you're one of the lucky nine, you won't even know there were bed bugs in the room. I am very grateful to be one of the lucky nine. I met a couple one time on the, on the Camino who they were cuddling in, in a bed one afternoon. She had bed bug bikes and he didn't. What do you know what attracts them to someone? Is it? 
if they if they're from St. Louis, Missouri, they're dead. <laughs> exactly, exactly. American men of a certain age. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, I I don't know, and that might be interesting to research if there's any 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 data on it. I don't know, but they either will like you or they won't. So we always hope we're one of the lucky nine. That's our goal. So there are things that you can do. And that is when you get into the room, one is you don't ever put your backpack onto the bed. It could pick them up or it could drop them off if you have them. And also our backpacks are always really dirty from being out on the trail. So we don't want to do that. But what you'll want to do is check the bed covering and the mattress if you can and see if there's any, what you'll be looking for is what looks like little tiny black dots that are, um, it's, it's their feces. It's really lovely to think about. Mm, but um, little, I know, yay, little black dots. Because you won't, you won't really see them in the daytime very often because they're, they're going to hide away. The other thing to look for is drops of blood because they do, they do break the skin if they get on you. If you don't see those two things, do a quick look around the, you know, on the edge of the wood and things like that. You're probably in pretty good shape. If you do find them, you want to alert the owner in a respectful way, not, ah, I'm scared. Ah, you know? Yeah. Here's the funny thing about bed bugs. They don't carry disease. They serve absolutely no role in the circle of life. They add nothing to this, to this existence. Now, the bigger issue with bed bugs is you don't want to take them home with you. So I'll give you a couple tips for how to not take bed bugs home. So when you get home, the very, very first thing you want to do is not take your backpack into the house. You want to take everything that can go into a washing machine or a dryer and put them in on a hot temperature and run them through a cycle. The heat will kill any bed bugs or bed bug eggs. If you can't do that, you can stick things in the freezer because freezing also kills them, which is, you know, that's kind of a funny thing to open up and throw your socks <laughs> and underwear in the freezer, but you know, you could do it. And then the other thing to do is to put your backpack into a black trash bag, seal it shut, and put it out in the sun for an afternoon. And the heat inside the black trash bag will kill anything that's in there. And just do that before it goes inside. Those are great tips. That's, that's great. Along the lines of uh, sleeping bags and pillowcases, do we have to bring our own uh, towels? Yes. If you're staying in the albergues, they don't provide towels. Sometimes they'll have them to rent, but that would be another euro or two per day. So there are a couple of schools of thoughts on towels. My personal experience has been with a pack towel, which is sort of a microfiber towel. I got it at REI, but you can get them online and they come in different sizes. One of the things I uh, learned very early on is to have one that's large enough to cover me from my armpits down to my thighs. Because I did at one point find myself in a co-ed shower room with a towel that was, you know, the size of my head. <laughs> must have made a lot of people happy that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so my personal modesty requirements are that I can, I have a towel big enough to cover my parts. <laughs> yeah. And then the other school of thought is something called a Turkish towel, which I admit I have no experience with, but people swear by their Turkish towels, fast drying, colorful, lightweight. So I would experiment with those two different things and see what you come up with. The only time you wouldn't need a towel when you're walking the Camino is if you're staying exclusively in private rooms, even private rooms in albergues, because all private rooms, in my experience, will provide towels. Great. And I guess along that same line, shampoo and things like that, that might, you might get it. Would you get those in private rooms, but not in the bunk, shared bunk rooms? Yeah, yeah. Most private rooms will have something like that in the bathrooms. Most of them will. Albergues, not so much because albergues are pretty, most of them are pretty bare bones. And the, the goal with an albergue is to have some place to sleep and shower and maybe some place to prepare a meal. And then when you start to get some of the private albergues that are sometimes a little bit nicer, you might have a salon area or a living room area to hang out in. You might have an outdoor space with a big patch of green grass. And that's 
pure luxury to just go plop down on the grass and your with your bare feet and you know play around in the grass. But yeah, I would not expect them to have toiletries. That's good to know. I, and I guess on the same thread of this, uh, you know, what we're talking about, you know, the towel and the modesty aspect of it. Um, I, I know it's it's been brought up that you know you're walking for many many miles during the day and you're trying to hydrate because you're walking through Spain so having the camelback loaded and you're drinking you're inevitably going to have to use the facilities and if you're caught between towns for a lot of just say it's easier for a guy to um to to relieve himself and yeah. not have to deal with this but we did see someone suggest and I don't know if there's a, a better name for it. They they called it a pee rag, something that isn't necessarily toilet paper that you would have to take out with you, which they you know, again, not trying not to be wasteful and 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 leaving things behind. Yeah. But have you ever heard of these these pee rags that you know? I, maybe this is a question Andrea should have brought up. It might have been a lot more <laughs> delicately approached than how I'm doing it. But there you go. There's no <laughs> taking it back, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get off of this one. <laughs> I just want to make sure we got it. Yeah, no, it's it's a good one is how to manage toilet breaks on the trail. It's a it's a really good question. And I'm in a couple of Facebook groups that are women only and these things come up often. And there are, you know, there's certainly things that you can do. There are things apparently they make things so that you don't have to squat to pee and uh, you know, I don't know. I've I have also spent a lot of time in India and so I I know how to squat. <laughs> so um <laughs> It's its own talent. (laughs) It really is. I, and I'm a fan, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at it. It's pretty, pretty good. So let, but let me talk about these bathroom breaks on the side of the trail. So you brought up an environmental factor and there's a couple sides to that. One is, yeah, definitely. If you are not, if you want to just have less waste in the world, one of those P rags, which I have never seen or used would be a way to go minimally you want to be sure to pack out anything that you that you have. So what I carry, it's really simple. I have a Ziploc bag and inside the Ziploc bag is the end of a roll of toilet paper that has, you know, maybe three uses or four uses left on it and a small translucent, not transparent. Is translucent the opposite of transparent? I don't know. Anyway, a bag you can't see through that um. I can put my waste in. And then I take that bag at the and empty it at the next trash bag or when i get to where i'm staying at night put it in the you know in the toilet that's where mm. my used toilet paper goes and i think the key is whatever solution works for you is or you and all of our listeners is find something that does not create more waste now the other thing is we've been talking about peeing on the trail there also are other things that we will need to do that i hope no one ever does on the trail <laughs> And so for me personally, I try to strategically use the restroom where I start in the day. And even if that means having a coffee before I hit the trail to make sure I can do, you know, I'll just call it my big morning potty, you know, (laughs) to make sure that I can do that. I traveled with a friend. We did an around the world trip in the late nineties. And that was, excuse me, big morning potty time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a practical element, especially if you do hiking and I run, you know, half marathons and marathons. And, you know, you have no control over your body when it decides it wants to do something. So if you always have that big morning potty is, you know, I think one of my thoughts was, you know, getting up so early to beat the heat, you know, people leave so early. Is there, is there an opportunity, you know, if you, if you, since we're down this road, Nancy, yeah, we're, we're going go all the way. <laughs> if you don't have your morning coffee, maybe yeah. that doesn't, that might help you. You know, it's just a matter of figuring that out as you yeah. go along. Let me give you a couple more things to think about when you're strategizing on your mm. bathroom needs. Uh, one is that on the Camino Frances in particular, the, the towns and villages are fairly frequent. So you'll come across a place with a bar pretty often. So every two to three to five to seven to eight miles, there'll be some place where you can go in and use a restroom. As in the United States, or at least how it used to be, courtesy dictates that you're a customer. So if you can, you would want to make that the time that you have a second coffee or you get a snack or something out of respect for the owners is to order something and then use their restroom. 
but you can use your apps and your guidebook to let you know how far it is until the next town. So you can be prepared for that. And if you're someone who just knows you're going to have to do trailside business, then you might want to bring along a, a little trowel so it can be buried appropriately or be prepared to pack it out. And we know that's not pleasant and lovely, but that's the responsible thing to do. And then the other thing I'm going to tell you, if you're, when you leave Saint-Jean, will you be staying at either Refuge Orson or Albert Borda? Or are you going to go the whole way to Roncesvalles in one day? We're hoping to go all the way to Roncesvalles in okay. one day. All right. So yeah. here's what you need to know. And everyone needs to know this walking that route. After Orson, there's no restroom, no mm. place until you get to Roncesvalles. And for some people, from Orsant to Roncesvalles is a six-hour hike. So that would be your last <laughs> stop to use the restroom. And Orsant at the Refuge, they've got a pilgrim restroom opposite the main building next to the terrace. So you can stop in there, bring your own toilet paper because sometimes it is out. And that's the other thing is I would always carry toilet paper with me on the Camino because you just often run into places with no toilet paper. So what is the total, dis not distance, but time approximately between Saint-Jean and Roncesvalles? It really depends on your pace. So it is, I just did the math on this yesterday. It's eight kilometers to, well, it, the total is about 25 kilometers up and over to Roncesvalles, about. And when you go for the descent into Roncesvalles, there are two paths. One is about one and a one and a half kilometer longer, but it's less steep. So one of the ways is steep and the other one is very steep. So the steep way is longer. So you've got all of that time. And, and it's one of those things, how do I figure out how long this is going to take me? Well, the first seven and a half kilometers is half of the elevation gain. So 2,000 feet or 600 meters. The next 2,000 foot gain is over eight miles. So it's stretched out much longer. And I know I'm mixing up kilometers and meters and, and I apologize for that. I'll, I'll write it out for you so we have it. <laughs> so the first bit is the absolute steepest. And that could take, that's taken me anywhere from two and a half to three and a half hours just for that first mm -hmm. seven and a half kilometers. And then I don't rush. It's one of my key principles is not to rush. And so I just take my time. And if the weather's nice, I turn around and look at the view a lot and sit on the side of the trail and talk to people. So yeah, if, if I were going 25 kilometers I, in one day, I would expect seven hours of walking from me at about four, out, four kilometers per hour with breaks. That's helpful. Yeah. That's a long, did you like the long answer? <laughs> There's the short yes, answer. I did. Yes. <laughs> you know me by now. You don't get the short answer. We want, we want the long answer. <laughs> no, that's very helpful because, I, you know, we don't want to rush our, our travel, but we, I also don't necessarily want to only go to Orison on the first day. I think the, the excitement of starting, I just want to keep walking as much as I, I'll have a lot of adrenaline, uh -huh. excitement. I'll probably just, I feel like I get to the top of the Pyrenees and just like coast over the, you know, like float <laughs> over the top. Uh, so I imagine going all the way to, mm. um, how do you say Roncesvalles? Um, no. The Spanish pronunciation is, is Roncesvalles. Roncesvalles. Yeah, they say it much faster, but to break it down, Roncesvalles. Andrea speaks Spanish, so I'm I'm a very lucky. You're so lucky. <laughs> One of her many languages that she speaks: uh, wow. Portuguese and English and and Spanish. So, um, yeah, very I'll be like, lucky. what is that? <laughs> very lucky. Yeah, you know the thing about stopping in Orson or Borda. Borda is one kilometer farther than Orson. Is I always start late, so sometimes we don't leave until about ten o'clock, and then we get up to Orson in time for lunch. And we sit and visit and we meet other pilgrims. We have time for shower and laundry. And then it's that big shared dinner. And then we fall asleep and then we get up and do the rest. So I totally understand what you're saying about that adrenaline and that movement. But there, I just wanted to mention there's also an opportunity to take your time in St. Jean in the morning. Thank you for saying that because this is all about 
well, not all about, but part of it is reprogramming elements of Western culture for myself, you know, traveling to India and like going, oh, wait a minute, the other people on this planet don't all have to be at work at, you know, 8.30 and go to 6.30, you know, living life and enjoying it. And that's why we're doing this. And maybe, you know, taking that leisurely morning. I mean, yeah. Both of these do, do need to be booked in advance because they do sell out. So Orson has the capacity of around 40, I want to say. They don't advertise that it's 40, but it is it is close to 40. And then Borda is a little bit smaller. I think I've heard 12 to 14 at Borda. So you, whichever one, if you do think you want to do that, it's best to book in advance. And one strategy is Borda is, is newer and smaller and it's, so a different experience if you can't get into one or the other, you're not going to lose. Either one is going to be a great way to start your first day. You could, if you go to Borda, I wouldn't regret not staying at Orson because you can stop there for lunch and have your lunch on the terrace overlooking the Pyrenees, which is extraordinary. And then walk a little bit more to Borda. Maybe one more kilometer, mostly uphill, and then you're done. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no, there's no wrong way to do it. <laughs> She's doing her. Your listeners can't see her doing her happy dance. <laughs> <laughs> Andrea, were you waiting for me to suggest this to Jason? Is that what was going no, on? Here? <laughs> no. I'm just picturing myself there. The other thing I love about your podcast is you often talk about that process of visualization or imagining what it's going to be like. And all that you're talking about, I can just picture it. You know, one thing we did just yesterday was we packed our backpacks with what we do have. Like, I think there are some things missing that we still have to get or decide what we want to take. But the few things that we know are coming with us, we just pulled them out, you know, folded them in the bed, put them in the backpack. And I just had to put it on and like feel the... <laughs> Love it. Feel the sensation of having it in my back. We are, yeah. I feel like we're revving up the engines and kind of really getting so close to going. Great. Yeah. Great. And then you can train with your backpack. Yeah. So hoping for better weather soon so we can get out and walk. That's what I was going to say. You know, we haven't been able to prepare by walking outside this winter because we live in New York State. So it's been very cold. I've been getting out for some runs. Now that the temperature is starting to warm up a little bit, Andrea has been doing Pelotons and I've been doing Peloton workouts. So we're really looking forward to it warming up so we can, like we did in the fall when we decided to do this trip, gather backpacks and the trekking poles and, and hiked around here and get up to 10 mile walks or, or, or beyond just to really see how it's going to affect us. Right. We're actually going to go to Puerto Rico in a couple of weeks for Andrea's birthday. And also as a training, uh, too bad we can't write off training, um, <laughs> but we're going to go to Puerto Rico and do some uh, hiking out there just without our backpacks, but to get our legs back in, into motion because we yeah, lose that good, during good. the winter. Number one training goal is to walk. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good goal. All right. What other questions? I think along the lines of the unknowable uh, you know, questions, what's the weather going to be like? There are a few things, particularly for shoes. Mm. We both like the uh, trail runners idea. We've already purchased trail runners. I, I went with something that was more breathable and I thought, oh, I'm going to need something that's Gore-Tex because it's going to be the spring. And then we're seeing people say, oh, it's don't have Gore-Tex in the spring because if you it's too warm, then your feet are going to sweat and it's not as easy to dry out. So I'm asking you the unanswerable question, <laughs> given you don't know the, the weather report for May, June, but typically what would, what would you wear at that time of year? Or what will you? Because I believe you're going to be over there at the same time. I will be. And, and, will be and to bundle two questions in one, talk about your sock routine again. I <laughs> kind of remember from season one, you, sure. you gave some tips, but talk about shoes and socks. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. Yeah. And the, the episode on selecting your shoes and your socks is in season one. It's episode three or four. I don't remember exactly which one, but it's early on in season one. What to do with shoes. And that is the conundrum is what this, the weather isn't going to let you know ahead of time what to expect for about five whole weeks. So what you're trying to do is get the right pair of shoes for 
every day for five weeks. You know, when we go out for dinner, we know it's not hard. We're going to wear these shoes and we're going to wear them for one night and then we'll get out of them and wear something else the next day. But when you're trying to choose one pair of shoes to walk, you might get it right. You might not. And I think it's important to be ready to adapt to whatever you have chosen because you might not get it right. And there's, there might not even be a way to get it right. So my personal experience, I prefer to take waterproof boots if I'm walking in the spring and if I'm walking in the fall <laughs> and if I'm walking mm -hmm. in the winter. You have two risks, as you said. One is if it rains a lot, your feet will get wet, your shoes might not dry, and you have a great chance of getting blisters if, if you don't have waterproof. If you do have waterproof and the weather is hot, your feet will sweat, you'll be uncomfortable all darn day. So it's a flip a coin situation, in my opinion. My feet do get hot in my waterproof boots. They absolutely do. And when it rains, they stay toasty dry. So mm -hmm. I think it's going to come down to personal preference. If you would be more annoyed by wet feet than you would by hot, sweaty feet, then don't, don't wear waterproof. And I think one of the uh, tips that you had with your socks, which I would love for you to uh, answer because Andrea was, you know, like to be reminded of it, but she yeah. reminded me that you suggested stopping every hour or two hours, taking your shoes off, letting your feet breathe. And that might be the opportunity if, if we were to choose Gore-Tex to let your feet breathe, let your yes. shoes dry out, put on dry socks, and then maybe you're hedging your bets yeah. that you will, you'll, you'll be avoiding those blisters because of the sweaty feet. Exactly. And oftentimes, to be honest, when it's really hot, if I have waterproof boots, I'm stopping every 50 minutes because my feet are getting so hot. And I also have a very low tolerance for heat. So that's important to note too. If you have a low tolerance for heat, you might not want those, those waterproof boots. So yeah, mm -hmm. so it's exactly what I do. And people think I'm crazy when I say it every hour, pull over, get your feet out, get some fresh air. And I carry a pair of flip-flops, which I call transformational footwear, because when you take your boots <laughs> off, it's so glorious to have your boots and your socks off and wiggling your toes and all of that. And then I go, oh, shoot, I got to go to the bathroom. And I certainly don't want to put my boots on yet. And I don't want to walk into the bathroom without anything on my feet. So I wear my flip-flops into the bar to use the restroom. But yeah, I change my socks every hour. When do I not do that? Well, if it's raining, it's really a pain in the butt to pull over and take off your boots because there you are in the rain. So my practice of changing socks every hour is a fair weather practice. I will admit right up front. Literally a fair weather practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Through and through. So uh, my sock plan, uh, Andrea, and let me know if this answers your question. I take three pairs of socks with me. I have two pair that are my newest and, and I get new socks maybe once every year or two. And the ones that I wear on the trail are the newest, fluffiest, softest, feel the bestest socks. And I alternate them every hour. When I take one off, I take a diaper pin and a nappy pin and pin it to the back of my pack so it can dry in the air and in the sun and walk with those socks and then flip those out every hour. I use a Smart Wool brand and I don't wash them every night. I was told early on that wool socks don't need to be washed every day. And so I don't because I don't like doing it and they might not. What if they don't dry and then my sock is wet? That's no good. So I wash my socks maybe every three days. And they go preferably go into a washing machine when it is time to wash them so they get nice and clean. But if you don't, if you just want to rinse out the sweat, that's fine too. And then I have one pair of socks that is equally soft and fluffy and lovely. And I wear those in the evening after my shower. If it's really hot, of course, I'm not going to put those on. I'm going to keep a, uh, probably my flip flops, but I need support. So I usually have to go back into a shoe or a crock or something like that. So, but I love that after shower sock. So that's just three pairs. You don't use any liners or? I don't use liners. I never had. And then I had a friend who worked at REI and she said, you know, the manufacturers are telling us that the way that the socks are now designed, they're designed so you don't need a liner. 
they're technical socks. They're really highly designed and you don't need a liner, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't wear a liner if you like to wear liners. Yeah, we, the, the fewer things we can bring, and it, there is like the Vaseline approach or a nylon stocking approach uh, and then the, the liner. And uh, yeah, it makes sense that the technology for clothing is so advanced, especially yeah. this, you know, something as important as shoes and socks. Yeah. And here's the thing with your packing list. Test drive everything. Decide before you go and then you'll know. So yeah. you think you want to use Vaseline? Well, lather up your feet and take two 15-mile hikes back-to-back -back and find out if you need Vaseline. Find out if it helps. You want to wear those nylons? Do it. Put them on two 10 back-to-back 10-mile -back hikes. Did you need them? No, don't take them. Did you love them? Yep, take them. Mm. Don't wait to common find sense. out on the trail. That's <laughs> right. Sense. It's hard to argue with common sense, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> so just do it and see if you yeah. like it. I have a question of something we can try, and you, you're going to know this. I mean, we've both traveled uh, internationally before, but do we need power adapters, converters? Like, how do you deal with chargers? Yeah, good question. Good question. So modern devices don't need the converting part of it. So modern devices can work with the voltage in the U.S. and the voltage in Europe, United Kingdom, no problem. No need to convert the power coming out of the wall so it doesn't damage your device. Leave the converter at home. What you do need is the adapter because their plugs are different. So in the US, we've got those two flat prongs. In Europe, they're two round prongs. And just to make it easier, wink, wink, there are two sizes of round prongs. And so if you're going to bring two, get two different ones. And how do you know? I'm not sure. I think they maybe they have different letters or sizes or something, but you can buy them everywhere on the Camino. So there are a couple shops in Saint-Jean where you can buy them. And then once you get into Spain, in any city, any town, you can buy them. There's a wonderful pilgrim shop in Pamplona called Caminoteca which is run by two former Hungarian pilgrims. And what I love about them is their inventory is specifically for pilgrims. They have curated their inventory, so there's no fluff. It's all for pilgrims. So they've got everything you need. The other tip for where to shop in Spain are these, what they're called Asia Bazaar stores. And I'm guessing it's because most of the inventory is made in China, would be my guess. Also, often they're run by people who are from Asian countries. So that could be why they're called that too. Asia bazaars or what else are they called? Um, sometimes Chino bazaar. So those stores, they're like variety stores. And they're just, they're just so fun because they have a hardware department and they have a kitchen department and they have a paper department. So you get your journal, you can get your S hook, you can get a little Tupperware container to take your piece of tortilla on the trail. Everything you need is at these variety stores. Yeah, so that's where I would get them. But I, I like to have one with me because the moment I, I want to be prepared, the moment I land in Europe, if I have to plug in at the airport or if, if something's dying. Yeah. I had traveled not too long ago to Prague and I'm not sure what I did wrong but I, because I, was, I thought that the little white block that came with my iPhone was a converter and it, and I believe that is to be true. Something else must have happened because my my phone got fried. But <gasps> I, it was okay. But <laughs> there was another phone in the room. But okay. yeah, I, I just wanted to make sure I didn't do that. It's like yeah. we both plug in our phones and they fry. Yeah, bad, very bad. The other tip for phones is if if it's raining, keep it in a Ziploc bag but not in your outside pocket because it can still get soaked through in an outside pocket. So put it in a Ziploc and put it on in an interior pocket or inside something that's inside something that's waterproof. A pilgrim in one of my very first groups lost his iPhone to the rain because he had it in a Ziploc, but it was in the exterior pocket of his rain jacket. Don't, don't, mm -hmm. do that. don't be that person. You're right. And it, that brings up another... I guess uh thing on our shopping list, potential shopping list are, are the dry bags. Do you use those? Have you come across those? 
I have seen people using them. The first seven years I walked the Camino, I carried my backpack the whole way. And there was just no way I was going to carry any, any extra weight. So dry bags or packing cubes, no way, no way, because they might only add three ounces. But let me tell you, ounces turn into pounds and pounds will piss you off. <laughs> and that's not good for your pilgrimage and your it's pain. not yeah. i'm trying to be holy and spiritual here <laughs> <laughs> so no i don't use any of that so what do i do to keep things dry though and how and how to keep them organized well when i pack my backpack i pack it by purpose and when and how i'm going to use it so if you think about the routine of going into an albergue the first thing that happens is you get assigned a bed or you get sent into the room to choose a bed. So I want to claim my bed. So the first thing out of my pack had better be my sleeping bag or sleep sack or something that I can use to mark my bed. So the way that I pack that is I lay out my sleep sack. I put my pajamas on top of it all laid out in, in you know a long stretchy thing. And I have a little Ziploc bag that has an eye cover and earplugs and I roll that all up into a pack. So there's my there's my sleep bag. So I first thing out is I pull that out and I unroll it. It's got my pillowcase in there and I set my pajamas on top of the pillow. Done. That's my bed. Don't even try to my bed. <laughs> the next thing that comes out is my shower roll, which has my towel. So I pack it the same way. I lay out the pack the towel the long way. And then I put down my pair of pants and I put my shirt, my clean underwear, my clean socks, and I roll it up. That's my shower pack. Now, if it's rainy season, those two things live inside Ziploc bags and that's it. I'm not doing anything that weighs more than a Ziploc bag. And you would be, you would marvel at the lifespan of a Ziploc bag on the Camino. Nancy, are you on the camp of people who wear clean hiking pants and shirts at, in the evening, or do you pack extra outfits for evening time? Well, have you listened to my clothing and rain gear episode yet? We did. Yeah. So when I'm carrying everything, I do go the purest route. I have two changes of clothes. So it's two tops and two bottoms, one for the evening, one for hiking in. It's ideal if everything can be hiked in so I could wear it all to hike in, but it doesn't have to be. It just is more limiting. So you have more freedom if it's actually two pairs of hiking clothes that you're interchanging. And then I admit I do bring something to sleep in because I'm more modest as we talked about before. So I'm not going to sleep in my underwear in an albergue room. Yeah. The year I was the most light, lightest in my pack, I slept in my evening shirt. So that shirt I wore at the end of the day after showering, I slept in that. And then in the morning, I put my trail clothes back on. Great. Yeah, I really loved your tips around layering as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And some people will say, make sure that everything can be used three different ways for three different things. And my rule is more, I don't bring anything that can't be used every single day except rainwear and a first aid kit. Mm -hmm. Everything else has to be used every day or I don't need it. Okay. And okay. Now we move into the honesty part of this. I no longer <laughs> carry my backpack. When I started leading groups, I started using the luggage transport service because I needed to have all my energy available to focus on my pilgrims when they were tired and they just hiked and carrying their pack and all that stuff. So I started using luggage transport. And it has evolved into me being nothing like a lightweight traveler. Mm -hmm. Nothing. I, I bring it all. You've I, earned it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I think you more than earned it. People see me, they're like, you're not a pilgrim, are you? I'm like, <laughs> in my heart, yes. yes. No, I think you. <laughs> yeah, good times. You're more pilgrim than a. Uh than many pilgrims <laughs> you're sweet we hope to see you there i you hope so i think we'll overlap dates we will and yeah I'll, i'll come find you yeah let's be sure to stay in touch yes do you have any other questions though before we wrap up i think you know the only other question we had here was and it was something that we heard on a podcast maybe just a couple days ago was from Saria 
to Santiago when there's this giant influx of, and I have no judgment because we could have been very, at one point we were thinking, we'll do the last, for the first 100K and the last 100K. So you got to, you know, bite off whatever you can, you know, at any particular time. But I know there will be an influx of a lot of people. And you had suggested the delaying of your, of, of that, like um, going only so far and the rest of those people move on. And then you're sort of between the waves. Yeah. I would love to get this, that suggestion uh, again, just to re- refresh our memory. Is it, well, I won't even try and explain it. I'll let you explain it. Then we won't have to repeat it twice. Sure, sure. So I I just walked Saria to Santiago last October and I hadn't done it since 2014. So it was just this, this wonderful renewal for me and reacquainting with that part of the trail because I'd been at the beginning in Saint-Jean to Pamplona for so many years leading groups. So when I went back, it was like, <gasps> and it felt almost new. So I got to think and devise a strategy for how I was going to do it without getting in with the biggest of the crowds. And so what I did was I stayed in Saria and my first day out, I walked 10 or 12 kilometers to Morgade, which is this place. It's, it's not even a place, it's a business and they have rooms and a restaurant and a gift shop and wonderful lounge area for their guests to sit in. So it would be considered a half stage according to the guidebooks. But see, nobody else did that. So mm, there were people staying there, but most people stopped there for lunch and then went all the way to Porto Marin or farther. So they all got ahead of me. So that was, that was the strategy. The other thing I did is I took eight days to walk from Saria to Santiago, where most people would take five to, five to six. And that allowed me to choose where I was going to stay very strategically. And it also allowed me to do something I love, 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 which is to never be the first person on the trail in the morning. I love to let everybody else get up and go, get on the way and have a lovely time. And you're ahead of me. So on that first day, when I stayed in Morgade, then the next day, everybody was in Porto Marina ahead of me or two and a half hours behind me in Saudi and they didn't catch up, even though I went to Porto Mari in the same place. And then I had the most wonderful experience of being completely and totally overrun with other pilgrims. But what I encountered was a group of 50 high school kids from Savia who were staying in the town. And I was at a bar working on some stuff and I heard these young, beautiful voices singing, and I heard drumming right outside the window of the bar. And I was just enchanted. So I just listened to them and just loved them. And so then what was so great is the next morning when the big group of 50 came up behind me on the trail, I was already in love with them. And so they came up and I just started talking to them and, you know, they're young, they're fast. I'm not, I'm in my fifties, let them go. (laughs) So I ended up chatting with a few of them at the back of the group. And it was just amazing because they spoke English and we talked and we chatted. They had Spanish flags and they were playing and wearing them as capes and all this. I'm like, (laughs) let me get your photo. So I took photos of them for them. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you have an idea of what Saria to Santiago is and you're insistent that it's a negative thing, you're going to have a negative experience. But if you take it and go, wow, who are these people and what are they doing? These are kids who are getting ready to graduate high school and go off into university and half of them don't even know what that means, you know? So to, to see what was around me and moment by moment, let go of my opinions of being surrounded by large groups of people, because mm-hmm. I like to walk alone, was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. The other thing I'll say about Sadia de Santiago You've come from Saint-Jean and you've had this experience with these people who also came from Saint-Jean and you've got a certain fortitude and a strength to you and a confidence and a competence and an attitude. And then you get to Saria and it's all these new pilgrims and their clothes are clean and their shoes are clean and they smell good and they don't know how to share space in the albergue and they're so badly behaved. That's, that's where the mind goes. That's right. where the mind goes. But here's the thing. In about a week, you got to go home. And then you have to go back to people who don't even know what the Camino is and what opportunities are there and what the experience is like. 
So I see Saria de Santiago as the transition time from that idyllic fantasy world that only this very fortunate group of people got to do to now let's transition to get back to what am I going to take home with me? What am I going to take back? Who am I going to be? And how about I start to open up to that additional level of chaos and craziness and busyness that maybe I don't want yet, but boy, I sure as heck don't want home yet. It's the portal. It is. It brings you back. Perfect word. I think part of that, um, the question for, for me from, for, from Saria on, and uh, because there are so many people filtering onto the Camino, do you uh, book in advance at that point of the trip? Is it like, okay, you really have to consider that. Like maybe on the beginning, I, I understand you know, maybe the first stop or two, it's important to book ahead so you can assure you have a bed. And if you're jockeying, you know, every day, are you, you know, jockeying, I mean, sort of like staying away from the big thrush of people. So you're, are you booking those in advance? I'm going to give my favorite answer. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As with everything on the Camino, it depends. So it depends on if you're staying in albergues or if you're staying in private rooms. It depends on if you're going to stop at what people call the on stage, which which would be the end of the stages laid out in the guidebook. Sometimes those are bottlenecks, but sometimes because there are so many places to choose from, it's not a big deal. So the true measure of how to answer that is when you get to Saria, you find out if you need to book because then you'll start to get a sense of how busy the trail is. And so you might call ahead and book Saria and get a sense. Andrea, since you speak Spanish, you can ask the people there, is it very busy? Do you think we need to book from here on? And they'll give you a sense of how many pilgrims are on the trail with you. That night when you're in Saria, you'll get a sense. You'll be like, whoa, this is madness. Or shouldn't there be pilgrims here? Mm. And you'll get a sense. Because all along the trail, what happens is there's, well, so imagine St. Jean in high season, in high season, the busiest times would be the first week or weekend of May, first week, weekend of September. They have sometimes 500 people a day leaving St. Jean going over the hill. Where are they going to stay? There's, there are not enough beds. So if you imagine 100, 200, 400 people moving as a block along the trail, yeah, definitely you're going to have trouble. But once people get to Pamplona, they start to spread out. And so now that's not such a log jam, but then there's another group coming behind them. So what happens is sometimes you get in with a wave of all these people and you can't find someplace to stay. So if you let them go ahead, so you do a half day, let them get ahead of you, then that releases. Or if you're walking longer stages, you get ahead of them and then that releases and then you have places to stay. And then also I would always encourage people to take advantage of all the different towns and villages. Maybe you had your heart set on staying in this one, like Andrea, like you said, I want that albergue, but everybody else did too. And so you might not be able to stay there, stay one town before or one town after, and then there's no problem. So it it really... It's one of the lessons of the Camino is whether you plan ahead or not, it's still going to be a mystery tour. You're still going to find out when you get there. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Releasing. Yes. Releasing control because it's what we do in our lives all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Unless you're going to book your itinerary ahead of time and book everything in advance, it's going to be a mystery tour. And even then it's, there's still lots of mystery for you there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I have one other question. It's just because, you know, I've got the list in front of me. Okay. Have you ever used gaiters for your shoes? I have not, but I can see the benefit of them, particularly if it's raining and you don't have rain pants. So let's talk about the rain version of it. Waterproof shoes are are wonderful and they are designed to keep your feet dry. Water will not get in through the boot, but it will get in through the top of the boot around your ankle. And that's why people's feet get wet with waterproof boots. The gaiters will prevent that if it's raining. 
I use rain pants and a rain jacket. So my rain pants prevent water from getting in the top of my boots. But gaiters are an excellent option if you're not going to have rain pants. Definitely. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they're lighter weight than rain pants. So if you're lucky and it's not too cold, either a poncho or rain jacket and gaiters will be the perfect solution. That's what I'm kind of hedging in my mind. Yeah. 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 Carrying an extra pair of pants. Like you said, ounces become pounds and pounds become pains in the butt. Yeah. They (laughs) piss you off. (laughs) off. Very good. I want to say this has been so much fun. And I love that we came into this conversation not knowing where it was going to go. And it ended up being long enough to do two full episodes. So I really just (laughs) want to thank you guys for sharing your Camino with me and with my listeners. And I'm just going to bet that they are as in love with you as I am right now. Well, thank you for being so generous with your time and with your wisdom and knowledge. We really appreciate it. You're going to make uh, such a difference in our lives. And hopefully the people who are listening to both of these episodes from these long-winded people in New York (laughs) (laughs) will help them have a better one too. I really hope so. And I must say that having had the opportunity to talk to you it is a flavor and a spice and just something extra in our Camino experience thank you so much for having us ah thank you and I cannot wait to meet you guys on the trail same here we'll share that cup of coffee or that glass of wine or bowl yeah thank you I'll look forward to that all right guys Bye. Bye. bye